You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Fancy Bear left tracks in Bitly, and Fancy Bear did an awful lot of phishing going back to March 2015. Experts take a look at Russian espionage and influence operations, and they draw some disturbing conclusions. The EU seems ready to go anti-encryption. How that will work with the EU's regulatory emphasis on privacy is anyone's guess. And no, that's not a famous theologian tweeting. It's the head G-man. I'm Dave Bittner in Tucson, Arizona, with your CyberWire summary for Friday, March 31st, 2016. As the week ends, interest in Russian cyber operations remains as high as ever. U.S. congressional hearings into the extent of those operations continue, and with heightened attention being drawn by stories of how extensive and aggressive Russian activities were. SecureWorks has been tracking Fancy Bear's activity during the run-up to last year's U.S. elections, and they found that activity to have begun as early as March 2015 and to have prospected over 6,700 people. While there was clearly a lot of interest in the U.S. election, that was far from Fancy Bear's only interest. Targets are said by Motherboard to have included members of the U.S. military, diplomats all over the world, Russian government critics, Hillary Clinton campaign staffers, and even Hillary Clinton. It was a phishing campaign, less typical of the commodity-level approach that continues to pay off well for espionage services. Only 2% of the marks took the fish bait, but when you've trolled through nearly 7,000 accounts, 2% is enough. SecureWorks was able to get the details they did because Fancy Bear left its bit.ly URL shortener accounts public, so even bears do leave tracks. At Cynet ITSEF 2017 in Mountain View, California, earlier this week, we heard an account of Russian cyber operations that emphasized four of its salient features. First, it has clear objectives in what the Russians view as an ongoing war between themselves and the West, and especially against the U.S. The principal objective is to induce chaos in what Moscow regards as a zero-sum contest. A Western loss, whether financial, social, political, or reputational, counts as Russian gain. As Andre Krail, CEO of security company Lifars, put it, during the Cold War, quote, if you did harm to the U.S., you were a hero, end quote, and that attitude and policy have persisted beyond the end of the Soviet era. Second, while all espionage services show a tremendous appetite for data, newfound ability to aggregate and correlate data makes any particular loss of a small bit of information far more consequential than it would have been earlier. And, as the Hoover Institution's Herb Lin pointed out at ITSEF, the Russian services have by no means been laggard in exploiting information in these new ways. Third, there is no clear line of demarcation between organized crime and Russian espionage services. The services regularly and deliberately make use of organized cybercriminal groups to damage their targets. 
Lin alluded to unconfirmed reports he learned of to the effect that there have actually been formal memoranda of understanding issued by Russia's Federal Security Bureau to cyber gangs. Fourth, espionage and influence operations are commonly carried out using relatively simple tools. Phishing continues to be used because phishing works. Some of these observations were echoed yesterday at the Billington International Cybersecurity Summit in Washington, D.C. Thomas Donahue, research director at the Cyber Threat Intelligence Center, more familiarly known by its acronym CTIC, noted that intelligence agencies have always had a large and insatiable appetite for information, and so Russian concentration on big data tools is unsurprising, as is their ability to profit from the data they're able to aggregate and correlate. He also said that sophisticated threats, like advanced nation-state espionage services, differ from less sophisticated threats, say small-time criminals or one-off hacktivists, less in terms of the sophistication of their technique than in their focus, determination, and persistence. They use what works, and since phishing works, then by all means, they'll fish. James Trainer is currently Senior Vice President, Cyber Solutions Group at Aon, but recently he was the Assistant Director, Cyber Division of the U.S. FBI. He told the summit that in his experience he'd long seen connections among organized cybercrime and the espionage services of what he called the Big Four threat actors, Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. But there are significant national differences in the way each of the Big Four interacts with crime. For example, Russia tends to make direct use of criminal organizations almost as subcontractors. In the case of China, one tends to see government officers moonlighting as cybercriminals without direct official sanction as a kind of private enterprise. Iran's relationships, trainers said, were too complex for easy characterization, but North Korea's case is easily understood. The government itself engages in criminal activity for the state's profit. Such observations about international cyber conflict are particularly timely as U.S. congressional inquiry into Russian influence operations continues. We'll continue to follow those hearings with interest. Reports suggest that the European Union will soon mandate backdoors in encrypted communications. The register says that companies who don't anticipate and voluntarily comply will find a hammer dropped on them sometime in June. This anti-encryption stance, motivated in part by concerns about police ability to monitor and stop incipient terrorist activity, seems to be in tension, to say the least, with the stringent privacy protections the EU also wishes to put in place. Researchers at Palo Alto Networks have found two remote-access Trojans, Troikolis and Moonwind, in active use against utilities and other targets in Thailand. Open-source developers using GitHub should beware. The Dimni Trojan is there and being used against them. Finally, Gizmodo says it's found FBI Director Comey's Twitter account. It's long been known Director Comey was on Twitter, but exactly what his handle was he coyly kept secret, which would explain the small number of followers he claimed, less than ten. The director's handle turns out to be an homage to theologian Reinhold Niebuhr. You'd think a Chicago man would have chosen Paul Tillich or Paul Ricoeur, but we don't know. Maybe you go to Twitter with the theologians you got. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. 
In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Uh, Jonathan, we saw a story come by about this cryptocurrency called Zcoin. Turns out they have a vulnerability. Yeah, that's right. They announced a vulnerability uh, a couple weeks ago, and what they had noticed was that a hacker was able essentially to um, to spend about half a million dollars worth of uh, of their cryptocurrency uh, that they weren't, of course, supposed to spend. And once they noticed that, they started digging into the code, uh, and they found actually that their code was indeed vulnerable to an attack, and they went ahead and, uh, and patched it. And to their credit, uh, they were very public about it. They uh, announced this vulnerability. They announced this mistake on their blog. Uh, and then they followed up with a more detailed post afterward explaining what exactly had happened. According to the story, this was a case of a simple one-digit typo. It's really unbelievable. It, it was exactly that. It was a one-character uh, typo in their code. And what this allowed the attacker to do was to uh, essentially respend uh, coins multiple times, which is something you're obviously not supposed to do. And for those of, for those of the, uh, the listeners who, are, who are know a little bit of programming, uh, it came down to a simple error of using a, uh, a double equal sign rather than a single equal sign. So the double equal sign is, is meant uh, to test equality between two values, and the single equal sign is meant to uh, be an assignment uh, of one value to another variable. And just that one error in the code uh, allowed the attacker to go ahead and double spend all these coins. And this is the kind of uh, error that uh, can make it through, you know, your your usual rounds of testing. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's not one of the things that typical uh, static analysis, for example, would find. Uh, it's an error kind of in the logical uh, portion of the code, and you'd have to really understand what the code is supposed to be doing in order to find it, which means that these automated analyzers are probably not going to be able to find it. Uh, but you need really humans to be involved and to be checking the code and to spot the error. Uh, looking at the code, which is which is available on their, um, uh, on their blog, as I mentioned, it is kind of surprising that it wasn't caught earlier. But, you know, it's one of these things where just a mistype and, and a single character error, like I said, uh, can cause these problems. And I guess if you look at the same code too many times, you don't even uh, notice these kind of things anymore. Yeah, and in this case, uh, nearly half a million dollars worth of problems. 
Yeah, that's right. It's really uh, it, it, one thing interesting about these cryptocurrencies, of course, is that anytime there's a vulnerability, you can be sure someone's out there uh, looking to to make money off of it because these cryptocurrencies are uh, have value in the real world, and so you can be sure that people are constantly looking to take advantage of them. Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. Struggling to secure on-prem apps with modern identity? Don't worry, you're not alone. Join industry leaders from Fortune 500 organizations to secure your apps on any cloud with any IDP, regardless of your environment's complexity. Meet Strata's identity orchestration platform, Mavericks. Say goodbye to the headaches of app refactoring and legacy tech debt. With identity orchestration, you can modernize legacy apps to use MFA or passwordless authentication in a few weeks, migrate from one IDP to another, and so much more without changing the app. No matter your IAM use case, Strata extends the value of your current identity investments. And the best part? You can try it for free today. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire to share your biggest identity challenge. And they'll hook you up with a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Don't miss out. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire. That's strata.io slash cyberwire. My guest today is Bob Ackerman. He's founder and managing director of Allegis Capital, a seed and early-stage venture capital firm focused on cybersecurity. He's also a board member at Data Tribe, which he describes as a startup co-creation studio that builds disruptive startups in the domains of data, analytics, and cybersecurity. He joined us in our studios in Baltimore. You know, I think we're, we're kind of at a, an interesting place uh, in the development cycle of the market. Um, you know, I sort of look at the last few years as um, large-scale efforts to kind of remediate gaps and holes in cyber defenses. So if you imagine a dike uh, with a thousand holes in it, a lot of people running around trying to put fingers in those holes. Uh, and that's important. You know, It's important because the architecture that we're living with today basically is, is uh, based on a 50-year legacy. Uh, it wasn't designed with the level of data integration, speed or velocity of data movement that we have today. And so inevitably there are gaps that need to be plugged and that's not gonna go away for the foreseeable future. But I think we're on the cusp of sort of what I'll call the second wave of innovation, where people are beginning to think, based on that first wave, uh, about more effective systems. Uh, you know, what have we learned in that first wave of innovation? How do we begin to get ahead of some of these uh, threats as opposed to purely responding to them? Um, so think of this as how do we stop water from getting through the dike? Um, and so I think that's that's a really interesting area. Uh, that we're beginning to move into where we'll see a lot of uh, innovation. And then you look at things like orchestration and automation, you know, where clearly, uh, you know, we're ready for that second wave where we need to fill the skills gap. We need to be able to respond uh, more rapidly to a threat environment, levels of automation uh, to assist threat analysts in responding to those threats. Uh, you know, good example of second wave of innovation. How do you begin to, you know, build the stack so that your your people are more effective and your offenses are stronger from the outset. What about uh, consolidation? Are you seeing a lot of that in our future? I think I think consolidation is inevitable in any industry. Number one, mm. uh, and cyber is not going to be uh, is not going to be any different. I think what's different about cyber is 
innovation will continue apace along with consolidation. So if you if you think about it, we're kind of rolling up the past areas of innovation. There'll be consolidation there while we push ahead in new areas of innovation. Historically, if you looked at innovation, the initial wave of innovation is driven by what I call hype and hope. The world will never be the same. We've got to grab part of that. <laughs> the second wave of innovation is sort of rationalization. Okay, what did we learn in the first wave? Now let's be a little more thoughtful, a little more deliberative about what we're uh, innovating around. The third is that consolidation, which historically is more of a uh, maturation of an industry cycle. We're going to see the consolidation in cyber, but it's not about maturation. It's just about building the baseline of functionality so that innovation can focus in the new areas. Um, you know, the nature of cyber, as you well know, is just, you know, bad guys versus good guys. Uh, innovation is a constant. It moves at a very rapid space. But at some point in time, we kind of have to clean up behind ourselves and integrate this functionality, which is essential, you know, into platforms that are a baseline of functionality and allows us to focus on new areas of innovation like homomorphic encryption or data provenance or orchestration and automation. I mean, if you stop and think about it, security analytics, orchestration and automation, you know, do the two of them come together, you know, consolidate, and is that SIM 3.0? You know, so you've got this rationalization of the building blocks into larger pieces so that innovation uh, can be focused in the areas which are more differentiated and really represent the cutting edge. Do you consider cybersecurity to be fundamentally different from other industries? Yeah, I, I, I do. I mean, if you, um, if you stop and think about cyber, I can't think of another area of technology where innovation uh, is, is a daily mandate uh, from a technical perspective. I mean, if you, if you think about the sharing economy, you know, the Lyfts and Ubers of the world, you know, the innovation is around a business model. It's important, uh, but there's not that continual drive for technical innovation. Um, cyber, uh, you know, if you, stop, if, you, if you step back and look at cyber, you know, there's a, there's a tendency to think about cybersecurity as a vertical niche. You know, I would argue that that is about as wrong as you could possibly be. In fact, cyber is broadly horizontal. You know, the global economy today operates on a digital substrate, you know, and cyber is about that digital substrate. So cybersecurity is as broad as information technology. So, you know, you have information technology evolving all the time. Cyber is evolving with it. You have this legacy architecture that has all sorts of gaps and holes. So in terms of a domain for innovation, it's about as big as you can possibly imagine. And because the bad guys are very adroit at kind of identifying vulnerabilities and exploiting those vulnerabilities, the good guys are running around, you know, equally uh, challenged to either anticipate where those vulnerabilities are or to respond to vulnerabilities that have been identified. So innovation in this space uh, is on a day-to-day basis. It's one of the reasons why it's, it's difficult, quite frankly, for cybersecurity companies when they're public you know, to continue to innovate as quickly as possible. As you get larger, it's harder to innovate as quickly as you need to be in order to be at the cutting edge in cybersecurity. So it's, it's, a, it's a market segment, if you will, that is more driven by innovation than anything I can think of, certainly in my career. That's Bob Ackerman from Allegis Capital and Data Tribe. And that's the CyberWire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. 
I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.